Like it or not, Yeshua taught Hasidic Judaism before Hasidic Judaism was even a thing. If you hope to make a point, then you better rely upon primary and secondary sources and not YouTube theology. Did not Yeshua say Yeshuot v'yelachim is of the Yehudim? When Hashem says in Deuteronomy to listen to the rulings of the Sanhedrin or the penalty of death, I don't think he was kidding. If you're a sacred namer, a two-house theologian, a chirite, a one-Torah theologian, and you reject the rabbis and the sages, get ready to have your foundation be rocked. Okay, buchim abayim. Shalom and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this week's edition of Brutal Planet in terms of our Garden of Peace series, A Marital Guide for Men. My name is Christopher Fredrickson. It's an honor and a pleasure to be with each and every single one of you here today as we go through this next chapter, which is chapter 8 within that of Rabbi Shalom Arush's book, The Garden of Peace, A Marital Guide for Men. And as you can tell, we're halfway through. And so the thing I want to first of all say, and I know I said this last week, it is so cool the fact that you know I've been getting probably about a good you know 100 emails each and every single week from people saying that the lessons from this series on the radio has changed their relationships with their wife or with their girlfriend or even just somebody that it is that they're pursuing 150%. And the thing about it though is that, you know, I, I really see within that of the messianic faith and the Hebrew roots, we see very high divorce rates that surpass that by leaps and bounds of Christianity. And the thing is that I think that with applying these proper principles, the principles of Shalom Ba'is, that first of all, not only will we do better than our Christian counterparts in marriage, but also I think that it is that we will surpass that and become closer to what the statistics are in Orthodox Judaism. In Orthodox Judaism, there is a 97% per, uh, success rate within that of 10 years. In the Hebrew roots of the Messianic faith, there is a 85% divorce rate within two years. Shocking. Within Christianity, you have a 46% success rate within that of five years. And so the thing about it, though, is that we can see that, first of all, the Jewish people in, ha in Hasidic Judaism and Hasidim have all of the answers, and we find many parallels to this within the New Testament as well. We haven't been trained to properly apply these things. Instead, the hyper-literalist view that it is that we have become so accustomed to have become the thing that it is that we've carried on over into the Hebrew roots and the Messianic faith. Now, as the representative for Lapid Judaism here within that of the United States, uh, 
I say that it is that we need to get into a Hasidic understanding of this concept of marriage. Because one of the things that is going to help you out so much in every aspect of your walk is, first of all, what brings about the most shalom. What brings about the most shalom, the tightness with the community, and what is it that looks at these things in a three-dimensional manner and still aligns with that of Scripture? That's vastly important. But we're going to get started right now within chapter 8 which is called The Way to a Happy Home. Now, Rabbi Shalom Arush starts out this chapter with a, a story, a story that is actually a very popular rabbinic story that was said by that of Rabbi Yosef Chaim, uh, who was the Ben Ish Chai. And what Rabbi Yosef Chaim said in this story is he was asked about the place where it was that the holy temple was built why it is that hashem had told david to go and to build the bayis hakmikdash the holy temple in the place that it ultimately ended up being built and this story is how it is that yosef chaim basically explained it, why this particular place was chosen. There were two brothers. One was very wealthy, had no children. The other, however, was very poor and had many children. And they both owned their own respective fields for crops and for wheat and barley and all of these things. What happened one night is in the middle of the night, the poor brother felt so bad for his rich brother. And he said, you know, my brother doesn't have any children. He doesn't have the simcha, the joy that it is that he needs because of the fact that he has not been blessed with children. So what the poor brother does is he decides that he's going to take some of the wheat from his field. And he's going to gather it up in the middle of the night when it is that his brother is vast asleep and then go and deliver it to his brother. And he says that, you know, if I go and I do this, it will make him happy. It will, you know, kind of, kind of uh, uh, sensitize the sting from not having children. <coughs> the rich brother had a similar idea. He said, you know, my brother doesn't have much of anything. He has all of these children, but he really doesn't have any sort of wealth or anything to really help sustain himself other than his field, which is not doing all that great. And so what he does is he then goes and takes full baskets of wheat and barley and all the things from his field. And in the middle of the night, goes and takes them over in secret to his brother and places it on his property. What happens is that this goes on for several months. Then at one point, both brothers were doing this at the exact same time. They ran into each other as they were going to go and 
bring the, uh, the, the fruits of the field to each other. And they met right there with their baskets right there in their hands. They knew immediately what the other was doing. And they dropped both of their baskets and they gave a loving embrace to one another. Yosef Chaim says that this is the place in which it is that the holy temple, the Ba'is HaKmikdash, was to be built. There's a similar story. Of two brothers, exactly the same except for their attributes. One was rich, had his own field, had no children. The other, however, was poor, had his own field, had no children. Both of them were envious of each other. And they both respectively decided in the middle of the night they were going to steal from the fruits of each other's field. They found that, again, as the story goes, they caught each other in the act. And ultimately what ended up happening is God declared this place to be the place of desolation, where God's presence would never be. Some go and say that this is the place of Mecca, or the place in which it is that the Dome of the Rock itself resides. What does this have to do with marriage? What does this have to do with Shalom Ba'is? Everything is based upon that of the Ba'is HaKmikdash, the Holy Temple. We can think of the Holy Temple and when it is that Moshe Rabbeinu, within that, I believe it's Parshish Mishpatim, where it is that he is going to say, and those who want to build these things for the Mishkan, which was the temporary dwelling place, the tabernacle, before it is that God had a place where his presence could rest for eternity in the Baishak Mikdash, which ultimately didn't end up becoming an eternity. Before he asked David to do this, he asked Moshe Rabbeinu to build the Mishkan. And Moshe Rabbeinu, said those who it is that want to build these things, to go and to make, you know, the tapestries and to, you know, to build the Mishkan itself and to build the Ark of the Covenant and all of these things, the menorahs and everything associated with the temple. Those who want to do it, come and do it. We notice that it is a much different kind of language here from Moshe Rabbeinu and from Hashem than any other place within the Torah. Usually it is like, okay, so many from this tribe, this is what it is that you're going to do. Those, uh, this number from this tribe, this is what it is that you're going to do. The reason why this is, and why Moshe Rabbeinu said those who want to do this, is because of the fact there is something we have to realize. With everything that it is that we touch, everything that it is that we create, Everything that it is that we uh, uh, dwell, every place that it is we dwell, there is a piece of ourself and our emotion and everything that is a part of the process that is a part of the emotional level and the spiritual level as well that is attached to the things that are created. 
Have you ever been to a very beautiful place? Maybe an amazingly beautiful building, but then you go in there and it's like something just doesn't feel right here. Something does not feel right. And it's because of the fact that, I'm not saying this is like demons or anything like that, but there's a spiritual attachment to everything that it is that we do, everything that it is that we touch, and everything that it is that we are involved in. We are a part of the formula of that spiritual uh, attachment. It could be something that is tov, something that is good. It could be something that is ra. It could be something that is evil. I know of two friends who are um, who are married, amazingly in love, love each other very much. And I remember one of them calling me one day and saying, there's this one part of our home where it is that it just feels cold, it feels depressing, it feels, you know, we, we don't like that part of the home. First thing I said to my friend is I said, have you and your wife ever had an argument right there with in that part of the home? And he goes, yes. And I said, what has happened here is that those feelings, that, that strong negative feeling towards one another has attached itself to the walls. And so this is something that we have to be mindful of in terms of this. Now, within page 169 of the book, it says, Hashem desires to dwell among us, he says, and they will make a sanctuary, and I will dwell in them. As it says in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, Hashem did not say, I will dwell within it, referring to the sanctuary, but rather that he is going to dwell within them. There is a direct parallel to that of Bret Tadashah of the New Testament. Because Yeshua goes and makes note how it is that we shouldn't be worried about the one that is going to, that can go and destroy the goof, the basar, the body and the flesh. Worry about the one who can destroy the nefesh that can destroy the soul. It also goes and says that Ruach HaKodesh dwells within us. Within the Old Testament, we see Ruach HaKodesh also uh, said to be the Shekinah. I know in the south here they say the Shekinah, but it's uh, actually pronounced Shekinah. And this is something to understand. When it comes to your very own home, and you're dwelling with that of your family and your wife. Because in a place where no peace is at, almost everyone will suffer from emotional problems. It was said to me by my late fiancé who passed away from cancer. Something that wraps up this whole book as a whole. She said that, you know, it's the woman's job to bring shalom. When she is there, the shalom is there. It's the man's job to learn how to keep it and to help it grow and to have it mature in all these things. 
Page 170, Rabbi Shalom Arush says this, For many years of working with domestic peace problems, I have found a common denominator. In virtually every case, the couple never received any proper premarital counseling. This is something I do rather often. Uh, the couples with problems are, norm are normal in every way. They have no intention to hurt or, uh, or to upset one another. Both husband and wife share the goal of a peaceful, loving, and supporting, supportive relationship. What's missing is the pra practical know-how of how to achieve this. No one has ever taught them, and it may never have occurred to them that there was anything to learn. Once people are open about learning the difference between the sexes and how to live successfully together, peace is not far from coming. However, there are many men who object to the basic learning of a successful marriage. Some think that there's simply no need. What is there to learn? Did my parents learn about peace in the home? Am I so simple-minded that someone needs to explain to me how to live with a wife? Just like everyone else gets married and learns how to manage, so will I. In the case of living together with a roommate, where one man lives with another, then such an argument would be justified. A dose of common sense, some sensitivity, some sensitivity and the willingness to compromise are enough for two men to live together peacefully. But marriage is about man living in close quarters with a woman who differs from him in every single way. She sees the world differently than he does, reacts differently to situations, and has different priorities and different values. Without an understanding of what makes a wife tick, a husband is bound to make big mistakes without even understanding what it is that he's doing wrong. One of the things that we've talked about for the past seven weeks of this series is the fact that men and women are different. That us men need to realize, first of all, that women are different. They perceive things different. They are on a higher mandrega in terms of the application and the spiritual implication of things. Even... If she isn't religious, she is still in tune with this because this is how it is that God made her. For instance, the Zohar itself says that Hashem accounts the tears of each and every single woman. doesn't say this about men. It only says this about women. We can look within that of the Gospels and we see that when Yeshua goes and tells Martha, after Lazarus has passed away, he's, she's, he says, your brother will, will rise again. She says, I know my Adon on the resurrection day. When have we heard the disciples say anything to that level of understanding? Women get this. It's intuitive. It's a part of them. Us men, for instance... If there is something wrong with the car, we then say, we need to get the car fixed. Maybe identify the problem. You know, well, this is what I think is going on based upon what it is that I've seen. Go and fix it. 
A woman, however, will see it much differently. A woman will come at it from many different angles and say, first of all, they'll ask the same questions. What's the problem? What do we got to do to fix it? But then there's going to be follow-up questions. The follow-up questions are going to be, what caused this? How can I make sure that this doesn't happen again? How long will you guarantee that this fix will last? Is there anything else that it, that this could have affected that uh, you know that you know that this problem could affect it and cause other problems? This is how women think. Women think much differently than us men. It's a constant analysis of every single different thing. Us men are very linear, very analytical in that way. Women, however, they realize that A plus B equals C. And that C is going to be an addition to D, which is going to equal E. You know, they, they see it from all three dimensions. They see, you know, they, they, they look for the patterns. What is going to cause this if this is done and so on and so forth. That's something that us men need. That's why it is that we fail so darn often on our own. One example of this that we could think of is you think of a person well, – well, let's take myself for instance. I'm a member of Menza, okay? I have a 154 IQ. I have degrees in journalism, political science, and I'm also wrapping up one right now for special education, okay? These are my fields of study, Okay? In terms of my my studies, in terms of uh, you know obtaining the the Moray certifications and rabbinic licenses that I have, there are certain emphasis that it is that I gravitate towards that deal with nishmat chaim. I'm an expert on certain things, not all things. And any sort of rabbi will be honest with you, and say there are certain things that he knows nothing about. You know, it's interesting. It was probably about four or five years into my walk to where it is that I had learned how to properly tithe to fill in. There's a story about this within the book here on page 172. It says, for example, to put on to fill in properly, a person needs instruction. How to put them on? when to put them on, what to do in so many situations, and so on. Even if a person were to buy the most beautiful and kosher to fill in in the world, he put them on his forehead where no hair grows. As many people mistakenly do, he will not once fulfill the mitzvahs of wearing tefillin. The mitzvahs of tefillin is one of the simplest mitzvahs to fulfill. How far easier than many of the other mitzvahs involving marriage. Yet, it requires extensive study in order to properly to fulfill it. All the more so, a successful marriage requires effort, learning, guidance, and much prayer and divine assistance. I want you to think about the one mitzvah that it is that you could say that I am a master of this mitzvah. Or you could look to your education. What is it that you've been trained in? You can look, maybe you're a person like me. Maybe you're a member of Menza. Maybe you're considered to be a smart guy. The thing I can tell you is that, yes, I have an IQ of 154, but I know nothing 
about meteorology. I know nothing about uh, many of the things dealing with things in the medical field. I know nothing about social work. I know nothing about being a lawyer. I know nothing about all of these other fields that require extreme intellect, but they are trained to learn these things in the schooling and in the training that it is that they have. Now, considering that we need to be trained within fulfilling each and every single mitzvah of the Torah in a proper and kosher manner, think of how much more when all of those mitzvahs come together and you have to fulfill them with somebody who is so much unlike you. Think of how much study, assistance, prayer, and learning and guidance is required for that. Ben Zoma, in Perkeavot, which is Ethics of the Fathers in chapter 4, says this, Who is the wise man? The one who learns from everyone. As it says, from all those who taught me, I became wise, as it says in Psalm chapter 119. Imagine a person with a heart problem going to the world's leading expert on eye ailments. The latter would have no shame in referring this person to a heart specialist who can help him, since he recognizes his knowledge of heart complaints is very limited. No one is going to look down on him for this. One of the issues that we have within that of the messianic faith, the Hebrew roots, is that there is this idea of you need to listen to me, that I know more than you because of the fact that I, you know, may fulfill a couple of more mitzvahs than our Christian brethren do. There's this feeling of superiority, this arrogance, and all of these things. And this, ultimately, is what is going to destroy Shalom Ba'is. Out of the numerous people that I have counseled in terms of the ways of Shalom Ba'is, this has been one of the biggest issues. I was talking with a friend just the other day, as a matter of fact, that said that it is that he left his wife because of the fact that she refused to keep the Torah of Hashem. That basically she pretended to keep it for a little while and then she decided to heck with this. I said, sir, the problem is not her. The problem is you. That sounds preposterous to the linear thinking mind. The egotist will never look within. The egotist will never Go and read the Torah of Hashem, nor that of the Ketuvim, the Nevi'im, or the Brit Tadashah, or Tarashi Abiyapeh, or Chazel. They won't do it for the reason of personal reflection and personal introspection. They won't do it for that reason. They will instead use it to be smart, to increase their arrogance, so that it is that they can see themselves as superior to all of those around them. Now, the thing about it, though, is that women are very reactionary. There's nothing wrong with that. That's just the way that they're made. The reactionary animals. Well, 
animal may not be the best word. <laughs> that seems to tend to take on a negative connotation, especially with something else we're going to be talking about. So forget I use that word, not animals. They are a different breed of being than us men. Okay? They react differently. You've heard me talk about how it is that when a woman criticizes a man, it bruises his ego. When a man criticizes a woman, it goes and destroys her honor and her vitality. When a woman goes and criticizes, it's almost like having this beautiful home. And the home symbolizes her husband or her boyfriend or her significant other, what have you. That's what it symbolizes. That's what she wants everybody to see. But the issue is that the yard has so many weeds in it. That when people drive by or they see the house, they go, look at all those weeds. I mean, oh my gosh. But she sees the greatness that is within him. She sees something that it is that nobody else sees. And what she wants are for those weeds to be pulled up so that everybody else sees the greatness that is within him. And that greatness is a mirror reflection upon her. We read from the Zohar a couple of weeks ago how it said in the Zohar how it is that the woman is the moon, the man is the sun. For the moon does not have a light of her own. It merely is a reflection from that of the sun. This is something that we have to think about. But the thing that destroys the Hebrew Roots movement in their relationship with Christianity and Judaism and, you know, any other face is the arrogance, is the ego, this you need to listen to me, you need to do as it is that I do, as opposed to looking at things in the actual application of the manner. For it says within that of both the Torah and within that of Brit Shah as well as in the Talmud, that the most important of mitzvahs is to love Hashem your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Yeshua says that if we want to be first in the kingdom of heaven, then we must be a vid. We must be a servant. He said, people will know that you are my Talmudim by the way that you ahavat one another, the way that it is that you love one another. That's how people will know that you are my disciples. Didn't say it's based upon how smart you are. How many more mitzvahs it is that you fulfill than it is to your brethren or whether it is that you fulfill it more correctly than those with whom it is that you are around. So what happens is with this ego and this arrogance, what this happens is this creates an environment within that of the Ba'is. I could tell you a story with my late fiance. Before it is that she passed away, she knew that I didn't celebrate certain holidays that it is that she celebrated. She was very much coming into this walk and into this faith. But I did not push it on her. In fact, a year beforehand, before a year before her and I had even met, she had lost her husband to cancer before, you know, a couple of years later, she passed away from cancer. And the thing about it though, she had just moved to Charlotte. Okay, she moved from Charlotte to Charlotte from Texas, and um, basically, you know, one of the things that her and the kids always remember was Christmas. You know, they would always get their tree and all that stuff. It was one of those things that was familiar to them. What did I do? Did I say, no, Tamara, you're not going to go and get a Christmas? No, that's not what I did. As a matter of fact, I said nothing, and I went with her to get her tree. 
I went with her to get it. I helped her set it up. I helped her with all the things dealing with her tradition, as opposed to pushing my own way. One night, we were sitting over there watching a movie. The movie was over, and we were having our usual real talk, like we always do. And we were sitting there discussing, just contemplating life and the Bible and just, you know, all of these other things that it is that we deal with in our day-to-day life and what makes us us. And she said, I want to know why it is that you don't celebrate this holiday. Why is it that you don't do that? So I knew that she wanted to know. I wasn't going to get out of this. (laughs) And I showed her certain things through history, certain things within that of the scripture, and why it is that I personally don't do it. She then goes and is looking over all this, meditating on it. She then looks at me and she says, we'll take that tree down tomorrow. I looked at her and I said, no. I said, the one thing that it is that the kids have that is a constant right now after losing their father is that they are accustomed to this. This is something that is that they can hold on to, something that is familiar to them. We can't go and turn all these things on its head, you know, because of new information and new things that it is that we have learned. That can be devastating for, for children. Over time, what we can do is we can discuss with them some changes that are going to come about at some point and slowly start to integrate those things in a way to where it's not a total shock to them and so that we can also maintain Shalom Ba'is. Because when a woman go is, is, you know, when everything changes for them and the husband may come to the Tower of Hashem They may start to have a different religious expression. This turns their world totally upside down if they're not experiencing it at the same time. And so the thing about it, though, is that with that early stage, often comes the arrogance. This is the reason why it is that the divorce rate is so high within that of the Hebrew Roots movement and the Messianic faith. It's because of that arrogance and that attack on a woman's honor and vitality. And so this is the, 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 the issue. Men don't understand what it means to be the head of the household. The man may indeed set the halakha, but however, how does he create the halakha? Does he just simply go straight to Talmud? Does he go straight to his Rebbe and say, Wife, this is what it is that we're doing. He goes and discusses the halakha with her. He says, you know, this is what it is that the Rebbe says, or this is what it is that, uh, you know, Talmud says, and all this stuff. You know, how is it that we can go about this? They work together on this thing. He brings it up. She refines it. She goes and makes it to where it becomes something of her own. She needs that. She needs it to be hers. It has to be something that helps her to maintain her identity and helps her to maintain her shalom. Men, this is so important. Drawing this line in the sand and saying, this is what you're doing, that is arrogance. That is arrogance. And that will take you so far away 
from Hashem. Even though it is that you may fulfill more mitzvahs than her, at the same time, you are further away from Hashem than she could ever be. Doesn't matter what her religious expression is. You support her. You maintain Shalom Ba'is. Ultimately, what ultimately ended up happening in that story is that at that time, what Tamara was doing is she was going and listening every single week to my Torah studies. She was asking me questions about this and that and all these things. And we would discuss, how is it that we are going to go about doing this? How is it that we are going to apply this with the kids? How is it that we are going to do this if it is that you want to join into these things with me? If it is that I ended up having a Seder to go to or something like that, I left the whole thing open-ended. I said, you know, I'm going to this Seder and all this stuff. You don't have to go, but would you like to, you know, join? And the thing about it, though, is that her love for me caused her to say, yes. Yes, I would love to go and experience the things that make up who it is that you are. And that's the key. Shalom Ba'is. If you have Shalom Ba'is, then the thing about it, though, is that in terms of religious expression, a woman is going to fall within the ways of fulfilling mitzvahs, fulfilling Torah, because of the fact that it's a part of you, it's a part of the thing that it is that she loves. So she will fall in line with those things if there is shalom ba'is. So this is why, I know that's a long explanation, but the person I was talking to, I said, Sir, you are the problem, not her. At the creation of man, it states, And God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. From here, we see that someone who is not married is not called man. As a matter of fact, it says within that of the Torah Shebi Alpei that if a man is not married, he is still an animal. He, because of the fact he hadn't learned to compromise or any of these other things, and it actually goes on. Uh, here a little bit into this, I believe it says in a similar vein, the Zohar writes that any form that does not contain both male and female aspects is not a supernal form, but a supernal form of which it says in the image of God, he created him was male and female where there is no unity of male and female, meaning that there is no love between them. The word of Hashem has the same numerical value for the Hebrew word for one, which is Echad. There is no divine image. The Zohar adds, whenever a male and female are not found together in, in, in unity, Hashem does not bestow his divine presence or dwelling in that place. A man should be at the most, a man could be the most righteous person in the world, but as long as there is no unity between him and his wife, Hashem does not dwell in his home. The Medrash writes, not a man not a man with, uh, without a woman, and not a woman without a man, and not both of them without the divine presence. A man without a woman or a woman without a man is nothing. What's more, both of them together, but without the divine presence, there is nothing. If we do not have peace in the home, the divine presence will, be, will not be between them. But once they merit having peace in the home, the divine presence rests between them. Only then... Can there be perfection? Rabbi Moshe Kodovrov says, of blessed memory, 
It is a simple fact that the Divine Presence does not rest with a man who lives without a wife. The Divine Presence dwells in a household primary by the virtue of the wife. From this short collection of teachings, we can understand why the creation cannot, uh, cannot realize its purpose and reach perfection without peace in the home. The purpose of creation was Hashem's desire to have a dwelling place at the, in the lower worlds. In other, in other words, down there in the lowly world, since he only rests his divine presence in the world, the homes of the, of, uh, true unity and love, then peace in the home is a necessary element for the peace of creation to be um, achieved. Uh, here's a good, here's a good uh, uh, illustration of this. Let's see if where we got some space here. The word for father in Hebrew is this word. It's the word av. The word for mother in Hebrew is this word. It's the word M. Now, within Hebrew, we have things that are called gematria. What we have here is that each of the letters represent a number. And you can add up the numbers that are within the letters because Hebrew doesn't have numbers. The numbers are the letters. It's called gematria. We see that if you add Av for father and M for mother, you get the same numerical value for this. The word Adam, the word for man. That's why it is that it says within that of the Torah, it says, let us make man in our image. Let us make, make man. That's very important. That's very important to understand. Let us, let us go on here. Only when a person marries and has true peace and harmony with his wife, not just in a case of fire and lullness of hostilities can the world reach its perfection. Ooh, big concept here. Big concept. Hashem will want to dwell in such a home. Their peace and love therefore invokes Hashem's presence and in turn brings blessing and abundance into the whole world. All in virtue of the wonderful husband and wife that dwell in peace with each other. Just like the two brothers that we talked about earlier. Tikkun olam, rectification, repair of the world. Where does it start? It starts within the home. We've talked about this before. You remember the, uh, uh, the analogy of the waitress that had her husband going and speaking ill of her and all that stuff, how she basically affected the entire nation's economy by having a bad day of work. The same is true with the opposite in terms of Shalom and Shalom Ba'is. But Shalom Ba'is is based upon a even deeper concept, the concept of Chesed. In Psalm 89 it states that the world is built upon Chesed. What is Chesed? Loving kindness. If the home is a microcosm of the world, then we can say that the home is built by loving kindness. In Perkeavot, yet again, quoting a lot of Perkeavot today, we are told that on three things the entire world stands. Upon Torah, 
or upon Torah study, on the service of God, and on chesed, on loving kindness. Acts of loving kindness are what sustain both the home and the world. A man can be the kindest person, helping widows and orphans and being charitable. But if he doesn't do acts of kindness for his wife, then all the kindness to others is worth nothing. Loving kindness to strangers that's coupled with neglected home is not the type of loving kindness that sustains the world. The loving kindness of a husband that sustains and builds the world is only that which comes that he does after he has been kind to his wife. Once he has concerned himself with her needs so that she lacks nothing and is happy and content, he then tends to the needs of others. There is no end to the reward. The fact is that everything is an investment with that of your wife. That first of all, if you, if your wife is unhappy and you're going to Torah study, I remember one time I was teaching over in St. Petersburg, Florida. And I was actually teaching on the concept of Shalom Ba'is. In fact, I think that the recording of this whole thing is actually in the podcast somewhere from about five years ago. There was a guy that came up to me and he said, you know, my wife didn't want me to be here today. She wanted me to stay home with kids. And I said, no, I'm a servant of God. I'm coming to shul. I looked at this man and I said, sir, then let me tell you something. You're not fulfilling the will of God. If your wife is telling you to stay at home, if she is lacking in any way, shape, or form, then you coming to shul means absolutely nothing. You are making a mockery of this place. The only way that you could be blessed by coming here is with her, is with, is with, uh, uh, um, is with her blessing. That's the only way that coming here is anything good at all. Because of the fact that you are destroying your home, you are ultimately working against the concept of Tikkun Olam. What about gratitude? What about gratitude? Us men are jerks. Let's just be honest here. Think about this. Think about this. Gratitude takes time and effort to develop. One way to do this is to buy a notebook and write in it all the kindness that one's wife has done and does for him on a daily basis. If a man could only write a fraction of the kindness that his wife has done to him, the book would soon be filled. To record everything that she, would, that, that she ever done would fill up many books. And, I'm talk, and when he says many, he's talking about more than all the tractates of Talmud. All the uh, books in the Bible, all the tractates of Zohar, all the tractates of Mishnah, all the tractates of, uh, of Shulchan Aruch, Tosefta, this would fill a library. After having done this, he needs to regularly review the list and add to it. When he can approach his wife and express gratitude for her for all the things that she, that, that she has done and does for him. Think about this, ladies and gentlemen. Think about this, men. All the things that it is that your wife does on a daily basis for not only for herself, but for you and for your family. How often do we say thank you?
How often do you do that? For the smallest things, such as doing the dishes, making dinner, vacuuming, doing laundry, taking care of the kids when they get home, picking the kids up from school, taking them to school, going to their functions. How often? Men, do it? Do we say thank you? Think about it. You know, how many times do we, you know, I'm really craving steak today. And somehow she intuitively knows this. So you come home and you say, what's, what's for dinner? And she says, well, I'm making, I'm making your favorite steak today. How often do we end up saying, okay, that sounds good. Instead of, wow, honey, that, you know what? That's really incredible. You know, it, it really means something to me that you were thinking of me that much that you wanted to make the thing that it is that I enjoy so much. What happens is we become too comfortable. We just see things as, oh, this is the way that things are. This is, you know, how life is. You know, uh, this is what I'm accustomed to. This is what it is that I expect. And so the gratitude then goes and starts to fall off. You know, it might go good for a couple of weeks and then the gratitude falls off. You know, let me tell you something, guys. As a, as a Kabbalist, one of the things that I put great emphasis in, great, great emphasis in, is being able to see God at work in every single aspect of life. If I were to take my coffee and just knock it over right now and see it spill out all over, all over the, the counter and say I didn't do it on purpose, say I just accidentally hit it, I'd be sitting over there analyzing why it is that that happened. Why it is that this had to happen at this time while it is that I'm recording this show. There is something that it is that God's trying to show me through this. When we wake up every single morning, do we ever say, Baruch Hashem, for the breath of life that is within me, that it is that I wake up and I breathe, that my heart is beating, that my brain is functioning, that my mouth is working, that it is that my body is working in the way that it is so that I can sustain life, and that Hashem, that you have gone and provided these things to me. How often do we wake up and do that? Whenever it is that we are, you know, say it is that we are on a camping trip, we're in the woods, we're doing our thing out there, and then all of a sudden we're out there fishing or what have you, doing something to get the food. And then it starts to rain. How often do we sit there and go, oh man, really, it's starting to rain now? Jeez. The egotist, the person without that lacks gratitude, is going to be the person that says that. The person who has the attribute of gratitude towards Hashem and towards their wife is going to look at it in a much different manner. The Kabbalist is going to look at it in a much different manner. They're going to say, you know what? Look at the amazing thing that it is that God is doing. Thank God I'm, uh, I'm only getting wet. But what he is doing here is he is going and providing for the plants. He is providing water for us. He is providing water for the animals. And ultimately what ends up happening is the trees grow they produce oxygen for us. And so we are able to breathe. We're given water to drink and to fulfill and to fill the mikvah. We're given this. And then the animals come and eat the trees. You know, the cows and the chickens and all these things. They go and they do this. And then we get to eat those chickens and those cows. We never think about that. We never say, thank you, Hashem, for the rain. Thank you, Hashem, for, you know, thank goodness I'm just, a, you know, a little bit wet. You know, I'm not getting hypothermia or anything like that, you know. But, you know, look at, you're trying to show me this, this great blessing. And here I am sitting up there going, ah, oh, man. We've become so far from being grateful in today's society, ladies and gentlemen. 
And the thing about it, though, is that we have to be more grateful than it is that we are. Because let me tell you something. One of the things that destroys a woman's honor and vitality is not just criticism, but also at the same time, not saying thank you for the effort that it is that she puts in. We men lack at this to a high extent. To a high extent, we lack at saying two simple words, thank you. Why is it that we lack in this so much? Is it society today? Is it our own ego? That's something that each and every single one of us should go and look at and to you know try and rectify within ourselves. We need to do a better job at this, ladies and gentlemen. So this week, one of the things I want you men to do is, first of all, start that notebook. Start that notebook writing down all the things that it is that your wife does. Increase in gratitude. And also, in every single circumstance, don't try and do the Sinatra thing. I did it all. I did it my way. Instead, look towards Shalom. One of the, th one of the things I want you guys to learn, I want you to learn this thing I'm going to tell you and, and learn it well. Sometimes it's not about, about, about being right. Sometimes it's always, well, actually all the time, it's always about shalom. It's not about, about, about being right. It's about shalom. Learn that. Make that a part of you. Make that a part of your observance. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank all of you guys for joining us here today. We, we, we dealt with a little bit of Hebrew here. I want to go ahead and let you guys know that I'm one of the instructors at the Hebrew and Aramaic Learning Institute. When this broadcast ends, we always have a commercial for the Hebrew and Aramaic Learning Institute. It's dirt cheap, $15 a month. I would encourage you guys to go and sign up and to join us and say it is that, you know, you, you're, you're saying, you know what, I'm invested in Hebrew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you can actually do uh, for $40 every three months. You, so you save a little bit. You can uh, go and take that class so you don't have to worry about the $15 every month. You can say, oh, I got three months to worry about that. Uh, so go and sign up for that. Also, make sure to go and get these archives absolutely free. We go and we take these videos. We put them up on Vimeo. We put them up on the website. We put them on social media. We put them on YouTube. We put them everywhere. Make sure to go and distribute them to everybody whom it is that you know needs help within that of their marriage, and we're happy to help them. And uh, also make sure to look for us on iTunes as well. If you go into the podcast app, which is a free app that I think is on every single Apple device, uh, you go into the podcast app, open it up, hit the little search, and type in Brutal Planet. And if you go and you do that, you can go and subscribe to this program and never miss an episode and also get past episodes as well. I think iTunes has the most recent 100 out of the 2,000 episodes of this radio program. But you can get them there absolutely free. So make a point to go and do that, all right? Ladies and gentlemen, I wish each and every single one of you shalom bracha. Peace and a blessing. Shalom. So you want to learn Hebrew or Aramaic, or maybe both? Make sure to check out HebrewAndAramaic.com. All three of the instructors on the website have accredited Moray licenses to teach the languages that they teach on the website. You can take the lessons on your very own time, and they even have a Roku channel so you can learn from the comfort of your very own couch. With over 200 videos going step-by-step -step through the languages and all the various scripts and over 100 PDFs of exercises and quizzes, this is the most thorough set of lessons that you'll find anywhere on the languages of the Tanakh and the Brit Hadashah. So visit HebrewAndAramaic.com today and sign up for only $15 a month.